coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines. Uh, it would have been night, night and day, of course. I mean, because Colin Kaepernick would be doing it for a different reason. I mean, so it's interesting because it's, of course, um, about skin color and just straight up the difference between being white and being brown or black and taking part in these kinds of actions. But it's not just about the actuality of skin color. It's about the politics. On January 6th, 2021, a six-foot, six-inch former U.S. Olympic multi-medal winning swimmer, Clee Keller, took part in a violent insurrection on our nation's capital. Like many in the crowd, he was allowed to leave the building following the devastation to claim the lives of five people. Many athletes of color, and people of color in general, clearly saw the double standard of how a white mob is treated as it storms Congress, and how black and brown protesters are received during Black Lives Matter protests. Further, one has to wonder what sort of reception black and brown athletes would have received from both the police and the media if the tables were turned. We'll speak to award-winning sports journalist Dave Zirin about the deep-rooted relationship between sports and politics and the rise of the activist athlete. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Images of January 6th, 2021 will be seared into the nation's conscience as a rioting mob of white supremacists stormed the Capitol, overwhelmed outnumbered Capitol Police, and stormed the halls in search of senators, congresspeople, and even Vice President Mike Pence, demanding that a free and fair election that Joe Biden won by more than 8 million votes be overturned. We have seen the images of Confederate flags, long a symbol of racism in this country, being proudly carried around these hallowed halls. We witnessed brave Capitol Police fighting off a violent mob, and we watched as the leader of the free world, who having just earlier in the day encouraged this mob to storm the Capitol, go on air and repeat his baseless claims of a fraudulent election. As more and more video surfaces about that fateful day, one image sticks out in my mind. That is the image of six foot six, Cleek Keller, a former USA swimmer and Olympic medalist, wearing his Team USA jacket with the US patch on the left front shoulder, casually walking around the halls of our nation's capital, along with the angry mob. Athletes such as Colin Kaepernick, Megan Rapino, and LeBron James have been vilified for peacefully taking a knee during the national anthem, speaking out on behalf of black lives, or protesting nonviolently against police brutality. But where is the outrage about Killer being involved with an insurrection that left five people dead and sent shockwaves around the world? Joining us to talk more about not only the double standard of protest in the sports world, but also about the rise of the activist athlete is Dave Zirin, an award-winning journalist. Dave is the host of Edge of Sports Radio and co-host The Collision, Sports and Politics with Vitan Thomas, and Dave Zirin. He is the author of 10 books, including The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. Dave Zirin, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, as I mentioned in my introduction, this coup attempt was carried out by Trump's hardcore base, including a former Olympic medalist, Clee Keller. 
He's been arrested and is being brought up on federal charges. Now, granted, he didn't participate directly in any physical acts of violence, but he was seen on video strolling around the halls of Congress. And yet there has been no one from Fox News, OAN, or any other right-wing media that has said a thing about him. How different would it have been if, say, Colin Kaepernick or LeBron James or any black or brown athlete were engaged in the storming of our nation's capital? Uh, it would have been night, night and day, of course. I mean, because Colin Kaepernick would be doing it for a different reason. I mean, so it's interesting because it's, of course, um, about skin color and just straight up the difference between being white and being brown or black and taking part in these kinds of actions. But it's not just about the actuality of skin color. It's about the politics that took place. So it's not just about uh, white privilege. It's about the politics that go along with white privilege. And Cleet Keller represented a set of politics that we could describe as white nationalist. And those kinds of politics clearly have gotten a pass from the federal government, from the Federal Bureau of Investigations, from the media, etc. While politics that speak to black resistance are met with an absolute um, explosion of condemnation. So you see the difference on display, and it's a difference of skin, but it's also a difference about the politics of skin and the politics that, that flows from either having to uh, be at a vantage point of resistance merely because of the color of your skin as a question of survival or using your skin color as a hammer in which to bash others uh, with a set of politics that are downright retrograde. And that's where Cleet Keller comes in. You wrote in a recent article, quote, the United States Olympic and Paralympic committees announced that it would not sanction U.S. Olympic athletes who protest peacefully and respectfully in support of racial and social justice for all human beings. This was a direct repudiation of a rule in the Olympic Charter that states no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas, close quote. They first off, Take us back to Mexico City in 1968 and what happened there that was so momentous in our nation's sports history. And secondly, why are the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic bodies allowing peaceful protests now? Well, I mean, 1968, that was where John Carlos and Tommy Smith in Mexico City raised their black love fists to the heavens, while Australian runner Peter Norman um, on the silver medal stand um, with a solidarity button on his chest. And this absolute electric moment uh, also led to an avalanche of uh, backlash on the shoulders of John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Peter Norman. People may know the image, but they don't know necessarily the story and the politics behind the image, which were rooted in resistance and internationalism and exactly the kinds of politics that run at odds with the hyper-nationalism and fascist uh, imagery that go along with the Olympic Games. So it really was an incredible, incredible um, affront to the minders of the Olympics and an incredible symbol of resistance that for people across the world was the picture distillation of everything that had taken place already in 1968 because those Olympics were not till October. So King, 
Robert Kennedy, both assassinated already. The Tet Offensive had been that January. The Prague Spring, uh, the Paris Strikes. I mean, just an international wave of struggles. And those struggles hit Mexico City as well. And we can't forget the massacre that took place before those Olympics in 1968 that killed um, hundreds of Mexican students and workers who were protesting, among other things, like why the priorities were spending on the Olympics and not uh, dealing with uh, the desperate poverty that existed um, in Mexico at the time. Uh, so that's what happened in 1968. And the legacy of 1968, there's a direct line between that and why the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee um, made their decision that they would actually stand up to the IOC. I mean, one reason is just that history has proven Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and the late Peter Norman correct. Like, they were right to protest around the issues that they were protesting around. And John Carlos was even on the committee that uh, pushed the USOPC to, uh, to take back uh, their opposition to protesting athletes. Uh, the other reason was that you've had these two athletes, Gwen Perry, uh, Gwen Berry, excuse me, and race in Bowdoin, uh, Gwen Berry, a uh, hammer thrower, race in Bowdoin, a fencer. And at Pan American Games in 2018, uh, Berry raised her fist and in Bowdoin took a knee. And those instances uh, generated a lot of backlash from the USOPC. But then after the, the police murder of George Floyd and all those protests that took place, I mean, there was a huge then backlash to the backlash. And a defense of Gwen Berry and race in Bowdoin. It was late, but better late than never. And that's really what pushed the USOPC. Like the, the, the athletes themselves um, really said to them, like, you either stand with us and Gwen Berry or you stand with the IOC. And the USOPC, they blinked. And, you know, that's why struggle matters in the world of sports. There has always been this refrain in this country that sports and politics don't mix. But in fact, that is far from the case. Can you talk about the nationalistic fervor that we see at football, baseball, soccer, and other major sporting events? And also, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a little history lesson going back to the days of Avery Brundridge, who he was and his impact on sport in this country. Sure. I mean, first to state the obvious, when people say sports and politics don't mix, what they're really saying is that sports and a certain kind of politics don't mix. The politics that you described, whether it's nationalism, militarism, uh, corporatism, I mean, those politics are very accepted in the world of sports. They're not just accepted, they're celebrated. But when athletes have tried to use their platform to say something else, to be something else, it, it, it's met very differently and received very differently. Um, it's about who is resisting and who is part of putting the clamp down on on the athletes themselves. And resistance politics are never listened to politely by the powers that be either in sports or, frankly, outside the world of sports. Now, Avery Brundage is a shaper of those kinds of politics, of the nationalism and uh, militarism in sports. Avery Brundage was the head of the United States Olympic Committee. And then he became the head of the International Olympic Committee. And so he was a huge, and he was a former Olympian himself. So he was a huge voice in the Olympics and in the organizing of the Olympics uh, from, I'm not joking around here, from the 19-teens through the 70s. So you think about that mark he made on the century um, and these politics. And his two most 
ignominious acts, the ones that really have stamped him for all times, uh, was in 1936 when he, he was a fascist sympathizer, Brundage, and a fascist himself, not just a sympathizer. And he was a Nazi sympathizer. And so he delivered the Nazis, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. There were a lot of protests at the time saying, you know, in 36, it wasn't fully known like what the Nazis either were doing or what they were capable of. But there were enough people, particularly Jews, who were um, fleeing Nazi Germany and telling stories of what was taking place, that there was a big uproar to say, wait a minute, the Olympics should not be in Berlin based on these stories. And so what Avery Brundage did was he, it's going to sound familiar, he basically said, ah, what Jews are saying, fake news. And he goes over to meet with all the Nazis in Germany and takes a tour of the country and comes back with this glowing review about how wonderful things are for Jewish people and national minorities in, in Hitler's Germany. And that played a decisive role in convincing people that they could actually stage the Olympics there. So that's his one mark of ignominy. And his other was in 1968 after Smith and Carlos raised their fists. Um, and he kicked them out of Olympic Village. And then in 72, uh, after uh, the Israeli wrestling team was, was killed in a, in a terror attack, it's a whole other story, though, thing that's a bigger conversation than we're going to have. But it was Avery Brundage who, like, didn't even allow any mourning and was just like, the Olympics must go on. I mean, so this is somebody who's, who's pretty cold and heartless and who also has a lot of strong fascist uh, uh, leanings that he expressed over the course of his life. But people don't realize that he also branded sports in a way that even though no, there aren't any Avery Brundage fan clubs anymore, and you don't see people out in the streets uh, yelling his name with, with, with Hail Marys and Hosannas, uh, the mark that he put on sports, the nationalism, the, the fascist undertones, the pageantry, the hyper-nationalist pageantry, the militarism, I mean, that, that all comes from the mind of Avery Brundage. This past year, we saw an upswell of protests following the lynching of George Floyd. As the protests mounted, the NFL, MLB, NBA, WNBA, and even USA Swimming put out statements and PSAs in support of Black Lives and other actions. But as soon as their seasons were over and the street protests died down, the BLM logos and the PSAs disappeared. What, in your opinion, will it take to get the corporate sports world to really start addressing systemic racism in this country? Well, in one respect, that's sort of like asking uh, a dog to meow, because uh, the corporate sports world is not an engine that's necessarily built for addressing systemic racism, because as we see over and over again, they are uh, creators of systemic racism. They can be an engine of systemic racism, whether it comes to who owns franchises, whether it comes to who coaches, whether it comes to who are executives with clubs. And whether it, whether it comes to the messages they send and things like expelling Colin Kaepernick from the NFL and then it's like, oh, we're all for social justice now, but no one's going to sign Colin Kaepernick. Or you're seeing in the NBA right now the terrible treatment of Kyrie Irving uh, because he has going through uh, mental issues and family issues and he took time away from his team, the Brooklyn Nets. And you know, one, one sports writer referred to Kyrie Irving as property of the team. So you know, this is an engine 
of, of racism as much as it is. And so I don't think it can necessarily be reshaped to something that will oppose racism. I think the best that the sports world can do, frankly, is not punish the athletes when they want to speak out and use the platform to speak out of this. I'm not looking to the Milwaukee Bucks to be a voice for justice for Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm not looking for the Green Bay Packers as an organization to become the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Wisconsin. I'm looking for those entities to take a step back and allow the players on those teams to feel like that they can use the platform that they earned to speak out without fear of any sort of reprisal. You tweeted recently, as Olympian Cleek Keller descended into being part of a fascist mob, friends saw clues in his social media posts but chose to not confront him. Please don't make the same mistake. If you see something, say something. Close quote. There have been a number of folks identifying friends, family, and fellow law enforcement that showed their faces on social media as they rampaged through the Capitol and have now been arrested by the FBI after people identified them. In your opinion, are we getting closer to the point that when athletes share the beliefs of a demagogue like Trump and begin openly spouting racist and fascist beliefs that their fellow teammates will rise up and call them out on it? I mean, that's very tough. Uh, I've interviewed athletes a lot, and, you know, in some locker rooms, they don't talk about politics at all. And as long as you're a teammate, you know, you're you're a brother or a sister, and you, you don't say anything about them. I've heard other stories about, you know, athletes who bring their politics into the locker room and then their big debates that come out of that. Um, but I'd like, I like the idea, given of, of how much of sports, uh, certainly the popular sports in the United States, are built on a foundation of black and brown labor. Uh, you would like to see that positively affect the politics of their white and oftentimes very high profile teammates. And you'd like to think that that has a pot, not just a positive effect through some sort of osmosis, but there's real political discussion going on. Finally, can you speak about the amazing story concerning the WNBA's Atlanta dream basketball team centered to lack Raphael Warnock and their amazing victory over the far right in the great state of Georgia? Well, first of all, I mean, you realize why they're called the Atlanta Dream, of course. It's a direct direct reference to the I Have a Dream speech because that's where Dr. King's family Mm. church is in Atlanta. Mm. So the Atlanta Dream is is like already, you know, infusing itself in these ideas of civil rights and Dr. King. So you have the Atlanta Dream, you know, beautiful name for a team. And then 49% of the team uh, is owned by Kelly Loeffler, who's this billionaire from Illinois who wrote Chunk, a, Chunk, Jesus, who wrote Trump, uh, seven, uh, I called him Chunk for some reason, who wrote Trump, because <laughs> I was going to say check, he wrote Trump a seven-figure check, and then he appointed her to be a senator of Georgia. And as someone on Twitter said this, nobody thin, blonde, and wealthy did so much less with 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 what they had than Kelly Loeffler. I mean, Kelly Loeffler went full racist demagogue when she started running for, for Senate. Here's this owner of 49% of the Atlanta dream who at the same time is telling people that black lives don't matter, that the Black Lives Matter organization uh, should, be, should be shunned, is part of the problem. And 
she blasted her own players for being political on the team. And when people on the team, her team, tried to actually speak to her about this, she wouldn't sit down with them either. Um, I interviewed Renee Montgomery, who's on the Atlanta Dream, who really tried to talk to Kelly Loeffler and say, what, what, what's going on here? You know, why are you using us as if we're like these racial scapegoats so you could drum up white support and win this Senate campaign? That's not right, you know? And we're, we're supposed to be part of the WNBA family, and you're treating us like garbage. But Kelly Loeffler wouldn't talk to Renee Montgomery or anybody else. So what the team decided to do was wear T-shirts that said, Vote Warnock. Uh, so they supported Raphael, Reverend Warnock, who, by the way, is Reverend at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the historic church of uh, the, the King family. So it all goes full circle with the Atlanta dream. And what, what was so um, interesting is like in talking to, to the dream players that they didn't just say vote Warnock because they wanted to, you know, like give this political noogie to Kelly Loeffler. It's like they actually spoke to Raphael Warnock. They debated policy with Raphael Warnock. Uh, they, they talked to him, and they, they came to the agreement that this was going to be an affirmative choice for Warnock, not just an anti-Loffler choice. And so they started wearing these ubiquitous Vote Warnock shirts that uh, everybody saw and went viral. And when they first started, the day before they wore the shirts, Warnock was polling at 9%. And, you know, he was very much seen as this outsider candidate, this, uh, you know, like liberation theologist preacher from Ebenezer Baptist Church. And and then, you know, Kelly Loeffler just got uglier and uglier with the racism and the division, you know, viral photos of her with Klan leaders, all kinds of garbage. And Warnock, you know, started doing commercials where he's like, you know, dressed like a suburban dad walking his dog in the park. Um, And everything changed and Warnock wins and Loeffler loses. And now according to reports just this week, uh, Loeffler is going to get bought out of owning the team. Hmm. Um, and so she's going to be no more for the WNBA. And so it's an amazing story. And I'll tell you, like when I wrote about it, like the angle I took, cause I thought it was so amazing is that it's not just about athletes being political or, uh, or, you know, being part of the voting process or what have you. It's that they directly took on the politics of ownership. And the politics of ownership always get a pass. Franchise owners, they do their business in shadows. And their political business, which we're underwriting when we buy tickets and the like, uh, their business is like on the far right wing of the political spectrum. And here you have a team actually calling out the politics of ownership. And... I wonder if we're going to look back and see, oh, this is the first of of many times. Because right now when you have so many leagues trying to market themselves like they're quote-unquote woke, you know, taking part in woke capitalism and woke marketing and look how woke we are and all the rest of it. And, of course, they're doing that because they want to appeal to younger, multiracial fan base that's less tolerant of intolerance. So we get why they're doing it. But to have that mirror then turn towards the owner's box and say, well, you can't have us say, you know, we're all wearing shirts for Dr. King and then you're out there like investing in private prisons. No, that's not okay. And so I wonder if the template that's been put down by the WNBA players and Loeffler is something we're going to see spread to other sports. 
and we are going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Dave Zirin, winner of the 2015 New York Press Club Award for Sports Journalism, the 2015 National Headliner Award for Online Magazine Writing and Sports and Society, and Northeastern University School of Journalism's Excellent in Sports Journalism Award. He is the author of 10 books, including Welcome to the Terror Dome, The Pain, Politics, and Promise of Sports, and hosts Edge of Sports Radio, which you can download on iTunes and other podcast platforms, and I would strongly urge our listeners to do so. Dave Zirin, we wish you and your family health and safety during these very difficult times in our country, and thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me, Najee. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.